clue through this. We should be finished up with James by the end of uh, August, so I hope you'll uh, stay with us through the study. And today we're continuing faith that works, uh, the deception of pleasure. Now, let me go ahead and jump to the introduction to kind of get this started. Pleasure in and of itself is not wrong. It's not bad or evil. God cre himself created pleasure. However, the enemy, as in everything else, seeks to take the normal desire for pleasure and make it corrupt. When pleasure becomes the ultimate pursuit of a person's life, they lose sight of God's plan and purpose for their life. And the key thing that we need to understand as we make our way through this life is that God is not a killjoy. I think that uh, uh, some people, especially uh, when we're teenagers, I remember those times. It's almost like uh, God wants to keep us from anything, everything. You know, you remember those, those thoughts you, many people have. But the problem is, is the fact that many times our pleasures can lead us to paths of destruction. And God wants what's best for us. And so he's not a killjoy. Look at Psalm 16. It says, you, God, will show me the path of life. Now, when he says the path of life, he's talking about something that is fulfilling, something that is satisfying. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God is seeking uh, for us to understand that this life can be enjoyed to a certain extent, but it won't be found in the things that many people find themselves in when it comes to the pleasures of this world. Uh, here's a great illustration. Some of you have read the letters or, or the um, book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, the book is about, if you don't know what the book's about, it's about the devil writing to his demons. Uh, and this particular demon is responsible for making a particular Christian miserable. How many of you feel like you're the uh, brunt of the book already? But anyway, listen to what the devil tells the demon concerning pleasure. This is very insightful. I know we've won many souls through pleasure. All the same, pleasure is God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one pleasure. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures God our enemy has produced and use them at times or in wrong ways in which he has forbidden. Now that is so true. The enemy hasn't created one pleasure necessarily. And so when you look at it, it's all about him distorting the pleasures that God has created in the first place. So the enemy's plan is to take the pleasure that God has given us and get us to pursue that pleasure in ways that are forbidden in God's word. Now, when you think about it, God's word gives us the instructions on how to use the pleasures he's given us to live a fulfilling, satisfying life. For example, physical intimacy is a pleasure given to those who are in a biblical marriage covenant. He has given it to be experienced between a husband and wife that would be a man and woman. If the ultimate passion for life is not, is, is not to pursue pleasures, and many have asked the question, well, then what is? Well, I think we as Christians, especially those of you in this room know what it is. It's to glorify God and be a witness to God for others. Now, how does all this shake out? Well, what I want to do is talk about this morning, and James does a great job taking us through these thoughts. The first thing I want us to see is the passion for pleasure can lead to disruptive problems. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. 
He says, where do wars and fights come from, from among you? Now, again, he's writing a letter to Christians. He's, he, he's written a letter that goes out to the scattered tribes of Israel. It's the, the whole idea that this is written for not only individuals but churches, and it's sent out all over the region. And so he's writing this, and it, uh, even to us 2,000 years later. So we could read the first part of this verse and we could say, okay, this is in the context of, of Christians, of us personally, that there's battles going on within each of us. And we probably would probably sit here today and say, yeah, there's a battle going on within me. But he's also talking about the possible battles, possible battles that could be between us. And so he's really clear on that. So why do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? He's basically saying that that battle that we're facing, those fights, those, those things that are going on, there's an inner turmoil. And he's basically saying it happens from within. And can it spew out into other areas? Yes, it can. It can create jealousy. It can create envy and all these different things. So the word wars there implies a state of war, a constant, continual condition of hostility. The word fights there may imply a certain battle that we may be facing. But how many of you have lived the Christian life long enough to know there is a continual hostility that seems to rest in all of us? It, there is. There's that thing that just kind of wants to lash out. There's that thing that wants to pursue things that are not necessarily of God. And for some of us this morning, it may not just be that natural inclination. Maybe there's a specific battle that we are facing. So James is using terminologies of war to talk about the conflicts within God's people. A disruptive problem is when Christians get trapped into the pursuit of pleasure at any cost. The word pleasures here, at least in the translation I'm using, is the word pleasures. In some of your translations, it probably says lust. But James is not necessarily talking about lust in a sexual context, but a desire for pleasure. It's where we get the word hedonism from, which means the greater purpose of life is to pursue pleasure no matter what. No matter what. Now, when he talks about members here, look at what he says. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The word members there is mentioned a lot in the, in the book of Romans. And it's literally the idea of, of the parts of our desire, the part of our makeup that reaches out to lust. It reaches out to those things that want to embrace those things outside the context of what God determines pleasure to be. Now, when you think about that idea, and I use this before because this is my favorite candy bar. This is a Hershey bar uh, with almonds. Okay, I, I love the almonds. Some of you are giving me the thumbs up. Yeah, this is a good one right here, okay? And so when we look at this, um, we, we see something that we may desire, something that we want. Uh, for some people like my wife, uh, if I showed this, then, then immediately she would be going through her purse to see if there's chocolate in her purse. I mean, it just, it's just something that awakens in her. Now, I can take sweets, I can take it or leave it, but for her, it's a big deal. Uh, matter of fact, if it's not in the pocketbook, we'll go home, we'll have lunch, and she'll go. She'll say, do you still have that candy bar that you use this morning? <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal to her. 
And so really what happens, and some of you will do the same thing. I, I know there's times where I've mentioned a, a milkshake from here. And, and some of you, before you go home, you go pick up a milkshake. It's just something that's awakened in us that re, we're reminded of. And, and many times, this in, in and of itself is not a bad thing. But boy, when you take it outside of its boundaries, when you begin to look at this and begin to say, I've got to have this no matter what. And maybe you're willing to steal it. Maybe between the services, as I've had my stuff over here, I don't. I want to see this for the next service, okay? But the thing is, it can drive us to points that can be very destructive and disruptive in our lives. When God created man, I want you to think about this. In the garden, he created a whole person, a person with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Man was considered whole. And then what happened? Sin entered in. Man became a fallen creature. The Bible literally says a spirit died and a, a sinful nature began to take up what was missing when that spirit left. So that sinful nature became alive. And we see that so many times. Part of the sinful nature became a twisted passion for pleasure. And so when you're saved, you receive a new nature. I want you to think about that. A new nature is given to us. And that's the reason James describes it as a battle. That's the reason he says that new nature comes in and it fights against that other part of who we are. How many of you are very aware of that battle? We are, aren't we? We see it. We see it play out. And so when we're saved, that old nature, it doesn't just go away. Literally, we're called to crucify it, put it to death. But yet, it still is there. I don't know about you, but... For me to live in, in, in what God has for me, in the best, what he has for me, you literally, he tells us how to do it. You have to crucify that part. You have to crucify that part that the submission to God and what he wants is best for us may live on and become a reality in our lives. So he's talking about this battle. Next, a pursuit of pleasure at any cost leads to destructive passions. Look at verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet. And cannot obtain. He's basically talking about the extremes of where this can carry a person. And, and he's saying if, we, if, if all we're doing is pursuing the pleasures of this world. In which our members are crying out. Our desires are crying out. It can have a devastating consequence. Look at what he says. He says murder. Murder is not necessarily only the taking of one, one's life. But the hatred towards someone. It may come as an envious spirit. It may come in so many different ways where we're coveting what others have. And he says, and you know what? We cannot obtain, we cannot obtain it. Even when we have it, it's still not satisfying. Even when we have it. That's, that's kind of what he's talking about here. And we get to the point where it, nothing ever satisfies. And that's what we're finding many times in people's lives. He's basically saying, saying this is a sad picture for a believer who has given themselves over to pleasure at any cost. They know they should live for the Lord, but this passion creates a barrier. And, and I don't know about you, but that's where inner peace is taken out of the equation. That's when it begins to, to disappear. We begin to see a terrible cycle begin. You, you want, then you get, then you want again, then you get, and the cycle never ends. You want money. You want more money. You want even more money. 
You want power, you get power. You want more power. Never is, there, is it satisfying. In John chapter 4, John introduces us to the woman at the well. And when you read between the lines of her story, you'll find that her life was just like her quest for water, trying to find satisfaction from the pleasures of this world. Jesus said to her, uh, well, he told her, he said, call for your husband. And she said, I have no husband. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you've answered correctly because you have five husbands and the one you live with now is not your husband. He's basically saying you're carrying on relations with a bunch of different people that aren't your husband. The relationship you have would make you think these are your husbands because of how far it's gone, but but it's it's not there. And so there's this cycle that begins. So, So some of us seek that our deepest desire be met by another person or even pleasure itself. However, our deepest desire can only be met by Jesus. Listen to how he answered her there at the, at the well. Jesus said to her, you know something? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them will never thirst. He's basically saying everything that this world has to offer and the pleasures and all the things you're seeking, you're going to get that and you're still, it's not going to satisfy you're going to want that. You're going to get it. It'll never satisfy. You'll move on. You'll, maybe it'll be a person with a different face, a different interest. And guess what? You'll just keep going and keep going, and it'll never satisfy. As far as you care, it will never satisfy. But Jesus is basically saying, but if you drink of me, you will find satisfaction. He says, the water that I give him or her will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He's basically giving you the epitome of what satisfaction is when it's found in him. He's saying, I am that satisfaction you're looking for. I want you to hold your place here and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's right after Proverbs if you have a hard time finding it. Solomon, King Solomon, had a passion for pleasure. With everything in him, he pursued this passion. You say, are you guessing at this? Or No, he'll tell you. He comes out and tells you, hey, I thought, I went after everything this world had to offer. And we know about Solomon. The Bible says at the time he lived, he's the richest man in the world. He had means to everything. There was nothing that would be kept from him because he had the ability to purchase it or have it. And he went after all these different pursuits and, and really what James is talking about here is, can be perfectly seen in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Listen, look at the cycle that, that Solomon describes. He basically said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. Let me give you a paraphrase of what he's saying in verse 1 to make it clear. He's basically saying, I said to myself, I will go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. But there was nothing to it. He's basically saying, he's setting up this whole chapter and he's basically saying, you know something? I resigned myself to going after pleasure at any cost. And I did not deprive myself of anything. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on in verse 2. I said of laughter. Madness. 
the very thing that, that, that brought a response from him. I mean, he was fully engaged is what he's saying and what was put before him. And, and he basically said it was insane and of mirth. That, that word literally means the pursuit of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and had to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. He said, I was on this pursuit. I was on this track to not withhold anything from me. I made my works, verse 4, I made my works. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing gardens of the grove. He, what he's saying here is, and here's what we need to understand. These things in and of themselves are not bad things. It's just what was he trying to pursue by doing these things? He was looking for something that would bring satisfaction. He was looking for something that would fill the, the longing that was in his heart. And again, he had unlimited resources to pull off everything that he ever so desired. I acquired, look at verse 7, I acquired male and female servants. You had servant, uh, and had servants born in my house, yet I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of the king and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the greatest entertainment that could ever be purchased in that day, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. It almost sounds like he did find satisfaction, but then he says this, Then I looked on all the works, that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had told, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Vanity. It, it, that, it was just a moment. Basically, what he's described, it was just a moment of, of, of satisfaction. It was a moment of fulfillment, and then it was gone. And I tried again, a moment, and it was gone. I tried again, and he tried everything this world had to offer. His conclusion, it was vanity. His conclusion, it came up to nothing. Turn back to James chapter 4. A third result of this passion for pleasure is defective prayers. Now, it's kind of interesting that we would drop that in there, but it's very important. You see, a, a deceptive passion for pleasure will affect our spiritual life. Now, let me just say this. I can gauge my spiritual life, the greatest, by my prayer life. And I think many of you have been in, the, uh, in this Christian relationship with the Lord Jesus or a follower of Jesus long enough to know that that is the case. I mean, even when I'm far from God, I can still read my Bible, right? I can still read a devotional. I can still do all these different things. But, but a fulfilling uh, prayer life seems to be the first thing to go when my spiritual connection with God is not right. How many of you have noticed that? It's that prayer life that is crucial. 
And basically, that's what James brings into the equation. He says, if you're out there pursuing pleasures and trying to find satisfaction in all these different things, guess what? It will affect your relationship with God. Your spiritual life will be affected. The first thing we see there is unoffered prayers. Isn't it amazing how when we get our eyes off the Lord, how we don't necessarily want to go into conversation with him, do we? And he's basically saying, we just neglect it altogether. So look at what he says in, in, in chapter 2. He says, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. He's talking about this quest for those things. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. He's basically saying, it's, it's not a matter of asking for those things and asking God to bless those things. What he's talking about is the fact you don't even go before God anymore. He's no longer on the radar. Your pursuits are beyond him in and, and, and so many different ways. So prayer, when you think about it, is the ordained means God provides for believers, for, them, for him to share in their need. God desires, and here's what we need to understand. He desires to meet our needs. Did you know that? But how many of you have had a prayer life that was very immature or a prayer life that, that, that it was very self-centered that you felt like God wasn't meeting your needs? Well, that was the reason. It was more about you and what you weren't getting. Think about it. God desires to bless us, and we don't even pray. The pursuit of pleasure will keep us from praying, discovering God's will and his best, finding those things that will bring lasting joy and fulfillment and not the counterfeits. My wife and I, we uh, were looking at something not long ago, and and uh, this is something that we really wanted. It wasn't anything bad in and of itself. And, and we began to pursue it. We began to look into it. We began to see, you know, what are our options, what could come of it and all that. And, and I don't know about you, but sometimes you get, your, do you get excited about something and start thinking, this may work out. And all of a sudden, it's like the door just shut. And we were disappointed. But you know something? We came back to the awareness that God knows what's best. We were convinced because of the way that door shut that it was shut by God. And you know what? We eventually got to a place that we, we rejoiced in the fact that he did shut that door because we trust him with our lives. We, we know that it may have been something we wanted. And guess what? How many of you have ever, when God shut a door, you went trying to climb through a window or create a new door? How many of you ever done that? You know, we've finally gotten our lives, and that's what we used to do. And you're laughing. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. But that's what we used to do. But you know something? We've settled in on the fact that he knows what's best for us. We've settled in on the fact that he didn't want that for us. And, and there was a time where we still fought through it. But you know something? We rested in that. And now, I don't know, I have a peace about it. That's where he wants to take us. Not that we continue to pound on the door. Not, but we just accept that this is what's best. And that's what he's saying here. He's talking about that fulfillment and that relationship that we can have with him. But first, we've got to take our eyes off that pursuit of those things that are contrary to what he wants for us. Those things that can be destructive to us. Next, defective prayers also includes unworthy prayers. Look at what he says in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, prayer doesn't work. I've literally had people tell me that. 
prayer doesn't work. And, and many times I'll ask them, I'll say, well, can you tell me in what, what do you mean by prayer doesn't work? And some of them really have a heartfelt explanation to that. You know, I prayed for my grandmother for years and, and God chose, not, and God didn't heal her and I'm, I'm upset and I'm up mad and all this, you know. And of course, I'll sit down and talk with them. Well, was grandma a believer in Christ? Is she a follower? Oh, yes, yeah, she loved the Lord with all her heart. And so you don't see that this may be an act of mercy. On, and sometimes I can talk them through that. But there's times where some people will come in and they're basically, you know, I've been praying that God would give me this and do this and, and, and give this to me. I say, have you ever stopped to even think that God really doesn't want that for you? That that may be something that will take your eyes off him? Or that may be something that could be dangerous to you down the road? Well, no, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, maybe you need to think of it that way. You see, God always sees the bigger picture. And basically, our prayers many times, he's saying, you ask amiss. Hey, what does that mean? No, there's a better plan. There's something out there that God is maybe keeping you from to protect you. And he's saying you're totally missing it. You might say, well, I prayed and nothing happened. But why? Oswald Chambers says this about that whole idea. If you ask for things from life instead of from God, you ask amiss. That is, you ask out of your desire for self-fulfillment. The more you fulfill yourself, the less you will seek God. So God's not going to give you that thing that's going to take your eyes off him. He's not going to give you that thing that was going to create a problem in the relationship with him. And some of you may say, well, that is just selfish. Really? Think about our pursuits how many of you know that unless God is dictating it and leading it and you have peace that he is doing that, how many of you come to the understanding that you tend to make a mess out of life? That you do pursue those things that leave you empty? God knows what's best. Basically, he goes on to say that we need to narrow our focus and interest to seek God with our whole heart. And when we don't, we ask amiss. James is saying, if you're going to make pleasure your main pursuit in life, you're going to have disruptive problems, destructive problems, and defective prayers. And he's very intent on telling us that. He's very clear in these verses. James now goes from pursuing pleasure to pursuing the things of the world. In this passage, James is demonstrating from God's perspective the whole idea of worldliness. Worldliness. Now, how does he go about it? Well, if you look at the outline here, the love of the world leads to a heart problem. Look what he says in verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what's that all about? He just kind of drops that in there. Well, why these terms? All through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, and then Jesus even mentions it. Jesus is seen as the groom while his people are the bride. Right here, James is talking about spiritual adultery. When you come to the Lord, you're seeking to put yourself first, or you're seeking to put him first in your life. It's literally like the idea of you belong to Jesus. Yesterday, I had the privilege to do a wedding 
uh, in Hickory or Granite Falls. And, and um, it, it was a couple that I've, uh, been, I was able to invest in them while they went to college here at Gardner-Webb. And they came to our church. And the young man's going into ministry. So I've been mentoring him. And uh, it's one of them couples are 22 years of age. And they're one of them couples that did it right. I mean, literally. And, and it's hard to find that in this day and age. But they did it right. They kept themselves for one another. They, they remained pure. They, they sought the Lord. Uh, they, they dealt with ridicule about how they lived their life. And uh, when it comes to there's just selling out to God. And, and it was just a special honor to stand right there and be a part of what God was doing in their life. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you that uh, it, it was one of those things where you, you, their vows, everything that they did in that moment and was, was just right. It just felt right. I wish I could say every wedding I've ever done, it felt that way. But this is one of those cases where I didn't want to mess up the ceremony because it was just so right. They did it the right way. And it was because they didn't get caught up in, the, in these pleasures and they didn't get caught up in the worldliness. They literally came to a point in their life, even as young people, that they wanted what was best for them from God, that God would determine what's best for them. And it was, it was one of the most remarkable things to do the premarital counseling with them. It was really cool to be a part of that. But they did it God's way. They did it right. You see, a follower of Jesus doesn't just fall into worldliness. How many of you think you've seen that before? Where someone was following Jesus and all of a sudden other things began to distract them and take them down a different path. It doesn't happen overnight. It's gradual. They, they fall into this process. It starts with a friendship with the world. And that's why he's telling us here in verse 4. It, then it evolves into a love for the world. That's what 1 John chapter 2 tells us. And then that person gets spotted or corrupted by the world. James talks about it in chapter 1. Then we begin to conform to the world. That's Romans 12 too. All these things begin to happen. And so most Christians, they don't dive off the diving board. They slide into worldliness. They begin to take their eyes off what God wants for them. Next, the love of the world leads to a will problem. Now, I'm not trying to say a real problem, a will problem. <laughs> okay, I thought that would be funny. Okay, uh, verse 4. He goes on, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is strong language, isn't it? That's strong language. Have you ever sat there and wondered, you know, boy, God just he seems to be pretty harsh here. No, he's not really being harsh. He's just telling the truth. God's best for you is one thing. The world, what do you think the world's best is for you is a whole completely different other thing. They're so different that they are literally at war with one another. Which literally means you can't come to the same conclusion about both. They're going in different directions. And that's why he's so clear about here. He's saying they're going in different directions. It's a conscious, conscious and deliberate choice to follow worldly pursuits. He says when we do that, we become an enemy of God. And that's serious business. I want you to think about this story. Bill and Mary have been married for 27 years. When Mary meets someone else... Mary then becomes unfaithful. Suppose Mary goes to Bill and says, this other man uh, I met and I are going to Vegas. Could you give, us, give me the money to make the trip? And, and Bill, please know that I still love you. How many of you ladies or men would sign up for that one? 
But isn't it amazing how we treat God this way? We do. God bless my mess. <laughs> bless these worldly pursuits. Bless that I want pleasure at any cost. Really? You may say this is ridiculous, but sadly, as I said, this is the way many people treat the Lord. Jesus, I'm going to go over here with the world. I ask you to bless me and meet my needs. And Jesus, I want you to know that I love you. And at some point, I'll probably be back. It's crazy. Next, the love of the world leads to a spirit problem. Look at verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You see, when we're saved, here's what we don't, maybe some of us don't get this, but when we're saved, when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Bible literally says the Spirit quickens in us. It becomes alive. But it's not just something that becomes alive in us. There's something that, that comes to, to create that liveness. <laughs> and it's the Holy Spirit of God. And that is where the battle is. If you claim to be a believer in Christ and there's not a battle going on within you, then I'm not so sure you're a believer in Christ. <laughs> because when the Spirit of God comes in, there's going to be a battle between you, uh, you between you, the, the flesh that, that's there and active in you and what the, what the Spirit of God wants for you. A paraphrase of verse 5 says this, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you yearns, uh, jealously yearns for the entire devotion of your heart. The entire devotion. This means that God has a holy jealousy for you. And that's how we are seeing God presented many times in the Old Testament. Next, the love of the world leads to a pride problem. Look at verse 6. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that feels like they, they feel it one of two ways. They, sometimes they feel like uh, God owes them, okay? Uh, and then I've heard those who feel like the world owes them. Uh, I've heard people say the universe owes them. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas out there that people have, but there's this idea that they're owed something. The word resist here is a military term, meaning to arrange in military order to go to war. Now, here's what this means. When I begin to pursue the things of this world or the pleasures of this world, here, here's what he's saying. We literally, or I will literally be going against God. It literally means I am going to war with God. And here's the horrifying part, and he's going to war with us. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? Now, again, who's he writing to? He's writing to believers here. You ever felt like you've been at war with God? I have. Jonah, do you remember Jonah in the Old Testament? He decided he'd go to war with God. Now, at what point did Jonah go with the, uh, at war with God? When he chose disobedience over obedience. When God said, I want, I need, I want you to do this, and he said, no, I, I refuse to do that. I'm going to do this. He went to war with God. Now, what were the weapons? Do you know the story? A storm? A well? <laughs> Those were the weapons. But eventually, who, who won the war? God won the war, right? Did he eventually do it? Yeah, he eventually do it. He didn't, still didn't have the right heart about it. 
But, but he basically, he, he, he decided he wanted to have a standoff with God about something. I, I've met people who've done that. I've done that. You say, really? You've done it? Yeah, I have. You've done it too. Anytime you're choosing disobedience over obedience, you're possibly setting up war with God. <laughs> because God desires to do things. We go to war with God when we are disobedient. When, and that is probably because we're full of pride. So here's the application. The foolish person lives their life seeking only those things that bring pleasure. That is a foolish person. You say, why? It will never satisfy. It will never bring fulfillment. And it's a cycle that they're in, many for the, all their lives. The Bible says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. L let me just say this. I never feel more pleasure than when I'm in the center of God's will. When this last couple of weeks, when I realized that this thing that I wanted was not what God wanted for me. Once I got over the disappointment, listen, I grew to take pleasure in what God did in my life. I came to the proper perspective that there was something that he didn't want there. Okay, and, and, and there's pleasure in that. Great pleasure is when we do something that we feel like God's asking us to do and we follow through. When we sense the Holy Spirit calling us out to do something. And you know what I found? That most of those things that he desires me to do is to bring glory to him and to make himself known to others. But sometimes it's just sheer joy just to, just to give of myself, to invest in someone. I'm not saying this to, to brag on something, but this whole weekend with this couple and working with the family with this wedding. I can't tell you how many people came up. And, and sometimes you wonder if you have any impact in a person's life. How, how many of you have invested, invested, and you sit there and you wonder, has it really meant anything? I had, I had mom come up to me, uh, this boy that I was mentoring. I had mom come up to me, grandmother come up to me, the, his mo future mother-in-law come up to me and said, thank you so much for pouring into his life. He told me some of the things that you were doing. Again, I'm not saying that to, to brag necessarily, but I'm just saying God led me and I was convinced that God targeted this young man for me to pour in his life. And I just followed through. And I'm just going to tell you, I saw the fruit this last weekend. And y'all, there was no greater pleasure than that. And again, please understand my heart. I'm not bragging about that. I'm just showing you how much I've learned about my, in my walk with God that if I would just commit to do what he tells me to do and I make the proper investments and I take a step, even sometimes when it makes no sense, and I just do it and I remain faithful to it, there's fruit that comes from that. That was some of the most satisfying fulfillment I've, I've, I've experienced in a long time was this weekend just seeing how God was able to orchestrate something and I'm blown away that he's capable of using me and using you in that way, aren't you? But he is. He is. I want to close with this part. The story of the prodigal son, we all know the story. It started off with this son pursuing the pleasures of this world. He came to his father. Do you remember what he basically said? Give me, give me. Do you remember the story? Give me my inheritance. Give me what is owed. 
give me. Pleasure became his ruling passion. He went out into the world to a far country. He blew what was given to him and on the pleasures of this world. Then he came to a change in his life. Do you remember where it happened? In the pig pen. The Bible literally says it was there that he came to himself. He realized what this pursuit had truly led to. Then he comes back to the father and his request was not give me anymore. You know what it was? Make me. It wasn't give me, it was make me. Make me. Now think about this. The prodigal son was basically putting his life in the hands of his father when he said, make me. When he said, give me, he was basically saying, I want control. I want to go out here and do what I want to do. And I want it to be a pursuit over here and over here. I've got so many different plans that I want to do. It'll be totally self-serving. I'm sure it will bring satisfaction and fulfillment. And what, what happened? It did none of that. And instead, he came to himself. And he went back to his father. And his whole terminology changed. He went from give me to make me. Make me. That should be our request with God. Make me into what you desire to me to be. Make me pursue those things that are best. God, only you can do that. It doesn't come from give me, but make me. Where does it begin? Verse 6 again. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, the give me attitude, but gives grace to the humble, the make me attitude. And that's what he wants for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you so much for who you are. And, and Lord, this world, is, it can be so confusing at times. It comes at us in so many different ways. There's so much deception associated with this world. But Father, I just pray that as we've heard a sermon like this, and Father, that we would be more in tune to what you desire for us than what we think we want, than what we think we need, and what we think will bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Father, help us to realize you're the only one that has the keys to those things that are everlasting. And Father, I just pray for each of us, Lord, that maybe we have taken that give me approach to, to, to the world and to all the things that are around us instead of just submitting ourselves in humility before God to say, make me into what you desire me to be. Father, I pray you'll just give us that heart in all matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do want to thank you for...